You're listening to the Manverse Podcast with your host, Tom Traplin, and this is session number 131. All right, welcome to the Manverse Podcast. I am your host, Tom Traplin, and this is the podcast where we explore what it takes to build a successful, friendly local game store. If you like what you hear on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever fine platform you're listening on. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, hit the like and subscribe button. As always, you can find the notes and links mentioned in today's episode at ManiverseSaga.com. Now, normally I start off with an intro for my guest, but today I think I'm going to do things a little bit differently because this is going to be a slightly different conversation than we usually have on the podcast, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> today we have Daniel Vanderkoy. I'm pretty sure I pronounced your name correctly. Yeah, you got I know, it. I know another Vanderkoy back in Ontario, actually. Ah, yes, we uh, we Dutch spread far and wide. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So but, uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What are we doing here? What's going on today? <clears throat> yeah, so um, I'm a once-in-future game retailer located in western New York. Uh, that's the side of the state without New York City. I most recently operated a local game store for a few years, and I currently help small businesses refine their core process and kind of codify their procedures. Um, prior to the game industry, I worked in quality assurance for business reporting and also international beverage production, distribution, and brokering. They're just as dry as you think they are. And, uh, <laughs> I kind of got into the game industry, um, into at least specifically game retail because I was doing a lot of business consulting and when you're getting paid, you know, when you're invoicing and getting paid every 30 days or 60 days, uh, Sometimes you're not always the best with your money. I wasn't. And it's suddenly like, oh, yeah, I'd really like to have some consistent income here week to week. So I started working at a local game store and the general manager moved away from the business and just kind of started assuming responsibilities till I was operating the place. So I'm pretty much a professional wet blanket. Almost every job that I've had for the past decade uh has involved understanding executive motivation and then bludgeoning them with facts until they reluctantly comply to, you know, changes <laughs> that are usually good for the business. Um, and because of that, you know, it's a lot of, Hey, uh, here's this analysis report. Uh, Hey, let's dig into the numbers and actually see if what you're trying to do makes sense. Um, and that's interesting. Uh, but it, it's not exactly, you know, really riveting. Yeah, no, vital, but not thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, because actually that reminds me of uh, of Porik and Brenda from Nightwatch Games. I remember when I did the interview with them, well, a while ago at this point, a couple of years ago, because it was I think it was middle of uh, early pandemic days. But they talked a little bit about how he was the vision. He had this, you know, dream and big goals. Yep. And she was like, She's the numbers person who had the realistic, you know, uh, nose to the ground understanding of what the reality of the situation was. And she, they balanced each other out. Right. Right. You need that person who's like, you know, I, I know you want to like go do all this crazy stuff and you want to do all these <laughs> awesome things with your business, but like, you know, you've only got so many dollars and cents. You got to make it happen in, in these restrictions and, you know, let's keep you in the box or keep you on the rails at least. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, I'm, I'm definitely more of that, uh, more the more of that numbers guy, 
you know, I mean, also soft skills in there as well, just cause like assessing executive misstep is great, but like, then you have to implement a recovery plan and then you need to communicate mm-hmm. that strategy to everyone else, you know, to make sure that it, you prevent it happening again in the future and all of that. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, I, I, I obviously, you know, running a game store, I had a vision for the store, uh, mostly aesthetics and community focus. Everyone says community focus, but I mean, as a business strategy, focusing on what every step of the business, how that looks to the customer. Um, but like, I'm not the, uh, head in the clouds, uh, feely guy (laughs) when it comes to getting stuff done. So. Yeah, yeah I, you, you still need to be able to communicate. Hey, you know things need to change, and you could you could come at it and say, "Hey, you're an idiot. You know you can't do it this way. Like we're gonna you're gonna crash yeah. and burn if you keep going this way." Or you can yeah. be nice, and you can be like, "Hey, let's find a solution. Let's figure this out. You know, maybe we yeah, need to try you, something new." You know, if you if you set your uh, magic rock box prices at this, you know that's really cool, but you know you got to sell forty at that price to make the same profit of selling ten at this price. Like, you know that guy (laughs) yeah yeah and i think everybody needs somebody on their team somebody that they know to give them at least somewhat of that perspective because it's very easy and i I think it's a uh, an entrepreneurial trait and i think it's very common for people who not just in like the game industry but just business in general that if you are uh, the person who's the entrepreneur who's got this you know dream of doing your own thing chances are you're a dreamer You're, you're out there thinking about all the possibilities and like we're notorious for, you know, the shiny object syndrome and just constantly being distracted by the new, the new thing. Right. Oh yeah. Someone to to ground you a little bit. Yeah. And speaking of constant new things, uh, the topic Mm. today is Hasbro and wizards of the coast and what the heck they're doing. Yeah. What is wizards doing right now? What is going on? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, (laughs) They are having a little bit of a shift in how they've operated traditionally, um, but it's not as drastic of a recent shift as most people see it as. Uh, They've had a brand blueprint that they've been working towards for two, three years at this point. Uh, And they've been very, very um, proactive about communicating that it's just the spaces they communicated in aren't typically ones where even retailers look and definitely not consumers. So. Yeah. And before we jump into too much of the detail, because this mm-hmm. will be a hopefully timeless episode. So some context, <laughs> this is March, 2023. Things have happened in the last few months and a lot of yeah. controversy has come up. Uh, mainly things alongside of, uh, I don't know what it'll be referred to in the future, but, the OGL crisis, this whole yeah. like hullabaloo with D&D and everything that went along with that. And then also, it's not a new thing, but it's kind of like come to a head in a sense that uh, consumers and retailers, pretty much everyone in the industry has felt that Wizards is, uh, hmm, how to put this nicely? <laughs> I could say they're abusing the brand a little bit about Wizards, about uh, Magic the Gathering in particular. Mm-hmm. But overprinting and the idea that like yeah. there's too many products, there's too many variations, there's too many things. They're not treating the LGSs as nicely or, or as well as you know like they should for someone who's like a vital yeah. part of this whole partnership that they've got going on. And this is this is what we're talking about today. 
yeah, as a as an, an analyst from Bank of America put it, uh, they're killing the golden goose. Yes, <laughs> maybe but, a little, maybe a little well, dramatic, but yeah, yeah, maybe. And and it's funny because I've had this conversation, or at least like versions of this conversation, several times over the last few months with with store owners that I've interviewed, and it's that. The trouble is, or at least like I think one of the, the troubling things is, is that the Magic community and Magic players in general are often a very salty bunch. And it's always <laughs> the end of the world when there's like a slight change, you know, like, oh, the new yeah. product, there's some some variation of like, oh, this is, you know, the game is dead now. This is garbage. And like they hate it. Right. So I feel like there might be uh, this might have kind of, you know, boy who cri- cried wolf kind of situation where the executives yeah. are like, don't listen to these people. They don't know what they're talking about. They're going to complain no matter what. But when they do make a bad decision, they don't realize it because they're not getting the the feedback correctly yeah, anymore, I, right? I think there's some truth uh, in from both of those positions, honestly. Um, I think that what some, some of what consumers are concerned about, I don't want to say complain because they're not as much complaining as voicing concerns, uh, and asking for information, which they're largely not getting from wizards. Um, but like things like the uh, 30th anniversary boosters, you know, uh, mm. consumers are very unhappy that they even exist, um, let alone how the release of them was handled. Um, Hasbro, on the other hand, Hasbro and Wizards, uh, I'm probably just going to say Hasbro most of the time, <laughs> just because Wizards uh, is no longer a subsidiary. They were rolled in as a division of Hasbro. So it's the. So, OK, so sorry, I'm going to just get something. Puppet. Yeah, just get something quickly out of the way. Uh, Hasbro is a publicly traded company. Um, most tabletop game companies aren't. In broad strokes, that means two things. Uh, one is that. Um, the foremost responsibility of their company leadership is the financial interests of investors. It's called fiduciary duty. And those investors are often the leadership as well. They usually have stock in the company. Um, There's a lot of ways of doing that. Like financial interest can mean different things to different people. But in practice, most U.S. companies uh, maximize short-term profits and try to maintain that growth indefinitely. And I don't think Hasbro's any different in that. Uh, the other thing with being a public company is it's there's something called disclosure. Uh, they're legally required to make public financial statements. So every quarter, you can go online, investor.hasbro.com, and uh, you can see how Hasbro's do it. Uh, they're truthful about it, because the only thing scarier than investors is the SEC. Um, but disclosure involves other information too. So like an annual report, but also announcements of like, Hey, there's going to be printing and shipping delays, or we're laying off a thousand employees or, Hey, we just signed a great deal with Paramount pictures for a movie. So with a publicly traded company, you have the first thing fiduciary duty, which means Hasbro doesn't look at magic and D and D the same way consumers and retailers do. And the second thing, disclosure, gives us a look into their current plans and how their past plans worked out. So with that in mind, that retailers and consumers don't see releases the same way that Hasbro does, um, Magic 30, uh, they concluded sales early. Uh, as far mm-hmm. as we can tell, they let most of the products sit in a warehouse for three months. 
but however it actually went down, if we use the best information we have on, by the way, in the background, you're going to see a lot of my bird flying around. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if we use the best information we have yeah, on how much product sold, do some napkin math with a generous production cost estimate, Hasbro made a couple million dollars in an hour long sale on what could have been part of their advertising budget. That's what it comes down to. The 30th anniversary packs, they're used mostly for prize support at Magic 30 events, promotional product for media personalities and WPN stores. So like total cost of them was probably covered by the first hundred direct to consumer sales and the rest was profit for shareholders. That is a slam dunk for Hasbro. And it doesn't matter what consumers think, what shows up on Reddit and YouTube, uh, how many thousands of posts not understanding the reserve list promise are made on Facebook. Uh, at the end of the day, it was profitable marketing and it's a tool they can still use for future promotion. And that's the disconnect you see between retailers and consumers. A lot of retailers, I, I don't necessarily a lot, but a lot uh, as far as like loud voices on the internet saying, oh, you know, I'm just going to hold on to this. I'm not even going to sell it to consume to, you know, to my customers. I'm just going to hold on to these packs uh, for Magic 30 because uh, I don't even want to deal with them. I don't even want to look at them um, versus Hasbro where this was great. <laughs> I think that really highlights that whole short-term thinking aspect of things is that, you know, you look at the numbers on paper, seems fine. Everything was yep. great. They made a lot of money. It was very easy, very quick. You know, if you just run those account numbers, everything seems like it's fine. But I think that also highlights. And I mean, I, there's probably a major disconnect between, you know, consumers and retailers. They don't see the whole sure. picture and they're active in their own thing. And, you know, it's hard to, it's really easy to make, to be the armchair quarterback and be like, Oh, I, I'm sitting from my perspective. You clearly should have done all these things, but like, you don't have all the info. Yeah. So like we have to give a little bit of grace to Hasbro and say, well, you know, mm -hmm. you've probably got more information than, than any of us potentially have. Uh, you know, maybe you're, maybe you got something else that you're operating on, but I think the lack of, maybe consideration of the long-term impact. It's really easy to right. look at dollars in sales, but it's really hard to measure damaged goodwill. Like exactly. if you look at say all the people who are complaining and saying like, ah, like there's, it, it feels bad, right? Like I felt like a, this was a, maybe an exploitive move or this was just, you know, the, I know they like to say that like not all magic products are for every magic player. Oh, like some things, is... these are these are people who are super the whales, right? These are these are for the money people who who have you know they want the gold plated whatever, right? I'm a it's huge not for fan everybody, of... and that's okay. Yeah, listen, I'm a huge fan of Mark Rosewater, but he should have been taken off of any promotion for the game when he said that not everything's for you. I that's because when a consumer hears maybe this product isn't for you, what they hear in truth is this game isn't for you and yeah that's just terrible like with magic 30 yeah. uh i i i don't even know how many like wizards is never gonna know how many um customers saw this and went yeah i'm not buying sealed product anymore i'm exclusively going to be buying on the secondary market because yeah. i don't have to buy sealed product if i'm not playing in an event so why would i 
You know, yeah. they pretty much in the past year have transitioned from uh, transitioned from buying large amounts of steel product, uh, treating the game as much as an investment as something to play, to not really doing that at all. You know, and that's yeah, yeah and I'm sure there. I'm hurts. sure it's a non-zero in a non-insubstantial a number of players portions of the playing population have saw saw that event especially like specifically magic 30 everything else like continues to keep happening right but that one <laughs> thing that one incident basically turned a non-insignificant portion of the population off of you know continuing to play the game at least for like a, a certain amount of time right you know magic players are also notorious for being like i'm done with this i'm out of the game selling everything and then like yeah. three years later be like i'm back come on in let's yeah, do was, it again yeah and, i mean that was me i took a 14 year break from the game um and it was over me not understanding the reserve list promise uh i sold everything in like 2013 uh after uh basically i stopped collecting when from the vault relics was printed and sold everything in 2013 and like just got back in uh, uh again as an example of like you know what i'm done no 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 no. that i'm still on the hook i was just drooling the whole time instead of buying <laughs> <laughs> so the impact remains to be seen like yeah. realistically we're probably gonna you know be dealing with this for years to come yep assuming it doesn't crash and burn continue like going forward right like assuming <laughs> Hasbro does not continue to drive this into the ground to the point where like they make some some sort of a fatal mistake. I think right now it's just choppy waters. Like they'll come through, they'll figure it out. And like I I think the OGL is probably a good example of that as well. Is that like Yeah. Hey, we're gonna go in this direction, and then the feedback and the response was so harsh that they were like, Whoa, we really like we burn we're not going in the right way. We need to actually pull back on this yeah. pretty quickly and change course. Mm -hmm. Which yeah, really so happens. There's there's a great quote, uh, relatively recent quote, um, I think probably between uh, when you and I first like talked and now, uh, from Kyle Brink, the executive producer of D&D. &D. Uh, I think his, his current take on things is fantastic. He said, changing the OGL didn't give us as much as it would have cost everybody, so therefore it's dumb. This is a terrible mistake, and the first thing you do when you're in a hole is stop digging. And I think that really... You know, really encompasses uh, what happened there. Give people a quick rundown on what happened. Yeah, like explain um, what the OGL is. Like, let's give, give yeah, a little bit backstory on that. So, so the OGL um, Open Game License uh, is a it's a license licensing agreement um, that's not direct one to one. Uh, like, you're not negotiating with Wizards. Hey, this is what I'm going to be producing. It's as long as you follow the rules that are printed in it, uh, you're able to use their content. It's a licensing agreement. Um, and the OGL that most people are talking about is 1.0a, which was a modification of the original um, as well. But the whole thing with it is that it was meant to be forever, just longstanding. Once a promise like that is made, it's kept and using the language that it was originally written in at the time um it wasn't able to be revoked since there's been some legal changes so you can have something that's both perpetual and revocable um but not at the time of the writing and so wizards um 
Hasbro basically uh, tried to revoke it. They tried to deauthorize it and not only create an updated OGL for their upcoming D&D product, uh, 1D&D, whatever it's going to end up being called, but currently 1D&D. Um, and deauthorize prior versions of the OGL. And the new version of the OGL had some extremely uh, concerning and restrictive language in it. Now, I, I don't, I, I think there was a lot of folks weighing in uh, who are not attorneys or specifically not attorneys in the areas of law that are relevant. I am not an attorney. You should never take legal advice from me. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I did ask attorneys who I know who work in this area. I have a friend who actually, who does licensing agreements and IP, uh, law with Disney. And it was pretty clear, at least from him, uh, that whoever came up with this was kind of fumbling around they didn't really articulate um the goals of the update to the ogl very well and that's where people just started speculating uh oh so it what happened really was sure. that uh this the the update to the agreement was sent out to folks it was sent out to profit partners and existing profit partners and um content creators and folks like that and it had a non-disclosure agreement attached to it so you agree to the nda you get to see it you get to potentially agree to it um and people didn't abide by the nda and quietly leaked it and there was some you know there, there was there was basically a kerfuffle over like oh it's a draft oh it's not oh you know we don't really know if this is what it says it's a leak hasbro confirmed that the content was accurate and that they sent it out so we know that the original version that was sent out was true and uh, really messed up. <laughs> yeah. And like when you're going to do something, at least like I would consider that somewhat drastic. If you yeah. like, it, it's kind of like the reserve list, right? The same sort of thing that years ago, there was this established promise that this was going to be the way things were going to be for in perpetuity. As long as this company was around, we're going to treat this, you know, this section of things uh, with respect, right? And this is going to be the agreement. So already I'm like, uh, seeking to change that feels again, part of that short-term thinking of like, well, we see an opportunity. How much is this going to cost us in terms of goodwill? You know, like how much is people going to yeah. get outraged versus how many millions of dollars are sitting on the table by making modifications to this thing and, and maybe capitalizing on something that they chose not to back in the past and kind yeah. of like weighing those two things. And, you know, they just see the dollars and potential I think, on the table and they go, yeah, let's go for it. So I think, I think on one hand, Hasbro knew that there would be some issues taken with this. Uh, the presence of an NDA uh, before an agreement rather than with an agreement is pretty clear to me. Um, yeah. I've only in a couple cases been told, Hey, before you come to the table at all, I need an NDA. Um, and those are usually for business dealings. I actually don't want to be involved with. Um, it's not and, a good sign. 
No, it's not. I mean, in my case, I I deal with you know companies that are below the forty million dollar gross revenue benchmark. So that's obviously like I'm going to have opinions one way or the other. But like Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast are way above my pay grade. Um, but with the companies I've dealt with, almost every single time the reason why there's an NDA before discussing is because they're not doing something correctly or they are specifically trying to create a power imbalance and leverage that. Um, but the other thing is like, I don't think that like, I just, I don't think Hasbro realized what sections were going to upset people. Um, like the whole royalty thing seemed to catch them entirely off guard uh kyle brink has said that it caught them entirely off guard because they didn't think that um you know a huge percentage of royalties that they were basically wizards and hasbro was like hey uh if you make over a certain amount of income um on you know ogl products you have to pay a huge royalty chunk um and most companies weren't impacted by that, of course, but everyone kind of lost it at that because it's the United States. We're all temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Everyone thinks that yeah, their tiny indie product uh, is eventually going to be the next D&D. I mean, I hope they all are, but like reality is most people who are upset by this weren't actually going to be subjected to it. I just, I, there's, there, there was a disconnect there between what Hasbro was trying to do and what they actually presented in the document. And so eventually there was enough backlash that they uh, really, really, I think overcompensated in the other direction. Uh, OGL 1.0 a is remaining intact now. Um, and <laughs> wizard of the coast released uh their system reference document as under Creative Commons, which blows my mind. I uh, I think someone just didn't quite understand exactly how far Creative Commons extends and what it's going to let people do. But you know, I'll I'll take it. I'll take the win on that. <laughs> Hey there, tabletop game store owners. Are you looking to level up your digital marketing game and boost your store's growth to new heights? We specialize in helping tabletop game stores just like yours dominate the digital landscape. With our cutting-edge strategies, expert insights, and tailored solutions, we'll unlock the true potential of your store's online presence and skyrocket your sales. And here is the best part. We're offering a free strategy call for game store owners that are serious about growing their business. That's right. Sign up now for a complimentary consultation and let us show you how we can transform your store's marketing game. Don't miss out on this incredible journey to level up your digital marketing and drive your store's growth to new heights. Head over to our website at maniversesaga.com forward slash MMA to register for your free strategy call today. It's time to dominate the digital marketing arena and achieve success for your tabletop game store. So what are you waiting for? Book your call now and let's make your store the ultimate gaming destination. Um... Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's better than the alternative, or better than the direction that they were going, at least. Yeah, and it's pretty. It I, to me, it's somewhat uh, enheartening, I guess, that they took the feedback and listened yeah. to it, and actually was like, oh, okay, we were wrong. 
right? We're going in the wrong direction. We need to change course. Because yeah, again, I mean, like you said, Hasbro is a gigantic organization at this point. Yes. For them to pivot is very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially uh, development. T- so with Wizards of the Coast uh, as a division releasing content faster and faster, not just with Magic, but also with D&D they are less nimble. They're less able to pivot because their timetables are much narrower. Um, D&D still has a pretty long lead time on products and they're still only releasing, like they really do work on products one at a time. Like they have a slate of, you know, we're going to release this book, then this book, then this book. Um, But they're not working on book two before book one is largely done. Uh, whereas with Magic, they have like a three, they previously at least, I don't know how they're doing it now with an advanced schedule, but they had a three-year mm. development cycle. So there was always crossover on product development. Yeah. Um, but like with D&D, I, I think one of the things that was uh, was a message they really picked up were the cancellations of D&D Beyond subscriptions. Um, I, don't, I don't think it really hurt Hasbro's bottom line at all. Um, uh, no. But like if people stuck to the boycott, uh, it would be, you know, between like one and a half and $2 million a year in revenue, which sucks, um, but isn't going to break their bank. But if what's reported is accurate, that over 40,000 subscribers canceled in a matter of weeks. That's a pretty drastic message. Yeah. Maybe had, like you said, the boycott continued. If they decided that they were just going to stay the course, maybe it could have gotten worse. Maybe the trend would have just continued in that direction. That would have been a problem for them long-term, but as it stands, like, yeah, that's, you know, that sounds like that's a lot of money, but for a billion dollar company, that's no big deal. Or a multi-billion dollar company. It's yeah. not a big deal. Well, I, I think it was a collective pressure. You know what I mean? They had legal threats from competing companies, uh, boycotts from the community, mainstream media coverage. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand how this, like, couldn't have caught the attention of executives or even the board of directors. So, um, also, there's, depending on how much the situation degraded, um it would be drastic consequences here, but like there is the possibility of things like a shareholder derivative lawsuit for saying, Hey, you're mismanaging this brand and it's costing us money or even a no confidence vote by the board of directors for the executive board saying, Hey, uh, (laughs) you really are killing the golden goose here. Stop it. Um, And so inevitably, whether it was Hasbro Wizards of the Coast, or specifically the D&D team, someone backed down on the changes to the OGL, and I think has made a good faith effort to settle the issue. Um, uh, Kyle Brink, I think, is a good corporate soldier who's kind of thrown himself onto the OGL grenade to save the rest of the squad here. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to watch considering that grenade was thrown by an officer, and it's the rank and file who are suffering the consequences, but... Um, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's made a lot of just additional promises and hopefully he keeps to them. But like one of the promises is that one D and D will also have a creative commons SRD. 
and that previous editions of D&D are also going to get SRDs released under Creative Commons, which is huge for creators, especially a lot of the smaller creators who were really, really shaken up by uh, the, the possibility that their, their games were in jeopardy. Uh, because like a lot of games that people don't even think about um, are attached to the OGL. So like, like for example, so like Fate, for example, um, okay. the fudge system um, was turned into Fate using the OGL license. Uh, not so the the OGL. Um, I personally think the OGL has always been a bad deal, and very few creators have needed it. If the law was only about logic and the law wasn't also about the power of money. Uh, but like from day one, the OGL was a promise that Wizard of the Coast wasn't going to engage in lawfare, the tactical use of the legal system to crush opposition, if you abide by the terms of the OGL. Um, and like during the whole OGL deauthorization debacle, there was a lot of talk about what's actually protected by copyright, what can be trademarked and so on. And a lot of those people are correct. Like there's videos all over YouTube about it. Most of them are right. Like you can't trademark magic missile or the appearance of an owl bear really isn't protectable at this point. But none of that matters if you're a small creator who can't afford to navigate bad faith lawsuits filed by a company that has a budget larger than most American cities. You know, like, yeah, that's the unfortunate reality. And like, this is a United States thing. Like not mm -hmm. every country is like this, but the idea that you can sue anyone at any time for anything kind yep. of kind of stinks in this situation because it doesn't matter if you're wrong right right and like i this actually kind of like ties into uh the whole like ada thing with the accessibility and like this oh, problem that that game stores are having with those things I, 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 I didn't want to touch on that in a second because i think that'd be very another interesting topic yeah but it's the same kind of idea that you could have somebody who's like you're totally in the right you have not violated any law but somebody thinks you have Right. Somebody has done it. Somebody has decided that you're violating their copyright right. or whatever. You've you've taken their trademark and abused it. And they've sent you a mm -hmm. lawsuit. They've served you. Now you're stuck being like, well, you know, I could go to court and like spend X numbers of thousands of dollars to try and fight this completely irrelevant or frivolous lawsuit. Or I could just pay you that little whatever settlement amount that you want to make you go away. And exactly. usually it's way cheaper to just make the person go away. Yep. Which is really unfortunate because that means that like that's exactly what's happening with this ADA situation. Right. The accessibility stuff is that the lawsuits, the cost to fight is so much higher than the yeah. settlement amounts that they're asking for that they can just go to the next one and the next one, and the next one, they can just, it like it mm -hmm. weaponizes the situation. Right. Which is and really the, unfortunate. Really, really disappointing. Well, and the, and the ability to combat bad faith uh, claims like that, um, Really, in, in, in this particular situation, um, I don't know how much you have or haven't talked about it, but a lot of these claims are just snap filed. They don't act like a lot of websites do fit the minimum standards of accessibility, but the lawsuit is filed anyway because enough people are going to not even look and be like, oh, what do I do? I guess I'm just going to pay this. Um, and stopping someone from doing that is shockingly hard. Um, and to tie that back to the OGL too, um, you know, it's, 
again, if you if you're a small company, you're just gonna close. Like it's yeah. not worth dealing with, especially when the alternative being presented um, in the OGL update is twenty five percent of your gross revenue. Like that's that's more than the profit margin on some of these companies, you know. Yeah, basically, like what? No point in even trying, right? If uh, yeah, if you're, if you're just gonna take it all away, mm-hmm. what's the point in creating a product in the first place? I I, I think. Come here, bud. Hold on, I'm under attack. Hey, will you please step <laughs> up? Can you be good? Hey, can you say hello? Can you wave? You're looking at me and waving, oh, but okay. Oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah. For audio listeners, the parrot is saying hello. Yes, he's a he's a he's a very good bird. Um, despite the fact he was just biting me, but um, you know, <laughs> kind of like how I uh, really love uh, Wizards of the Coast products, despite how they're behaving. Uh, but yeah, the OGL was OGL situation was tough. I I think that a lot more people were. It was a lot more concerning for um, creators and people who wanted to be creators um, than it really was concerning for the average D&D player. Uh, I actually don't think the majority of D&D players even know about the OGL debacle, despite how omnipresent it was on the internet. Just because the average D&D player isn't someone you see in your local game store. They're people who buy their books from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and you know were introduced by Stranger Things, Critical Role, Dimension 20. Um, you know, it, I, I don't think the this is going to hurt the rollout of 1D&D as much as a lot of uh, consumers think it will, um, for better or worse. No, I feel like they successfully put that fire out. And as long as they don't try to deviate too hard in another direction again in the near future, they could probably just keep going forward as if nothing happened. Hey, we made a mistake. We owned up to it. We fixed it. Let's keep going. Let's keep having fun, right? I think they could push forward, at least in that regard. I think in terms of magic, I think they've been kind of going and... I think they've been whipping that horse for so many years at this point that it's like, I don't know if there is an easier, it's a much longer process for them to fix, fix magic. I think. I think so. Especially since they, Hasbro hasn't been, (laughs) Hasbro leadership, leadership for Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast, uh, specifically, um, former head of Wizards and current head of Hasbro, Chris Cox, and then current head of Wizards of the Coast, Cynthia Williams, um, they keep making these almost... these almost unhinged comments. Like, the reason why uh, Wizards Profit Q3 and Q4 was down uh, is, you know, is because customers are too price-sensitive. That was from Chris Cox Um, or both Chris Cox and Cynthia Williams, um, you know, uh, just really focusing on um, that, you know, no, we're not overprinting. There's nothing in our data that shows that we're overprinting, which is absurd. I don't know how anyone looks at the past two years in detail and can say that they aren't overprinting. Um, But 
that's a you know, that's been a very interesting point for me. Yeah. Curiosity was like, how, how do you are, like? Are you yeah? You know, are well, you being? Like I you're just putting the blinders on, and you're like, I'm like. Yeah, so, so I can see some of it. So, like, so, for example, um, I don't think Hasbro looks at overall card growth like we do. Um, like, retailers and consumers live in the secondary market, so that's what they look at. Like, uh, 2021, for example, had about 1,800 new cards added to Magic, which was the largest number of new cards in any year of the game's history to that date. 2022 saw 2,400 cards added to the game. So, like, that's out of, like, 25,000 unique name cards. So, in yeah. 2022, we saw over 10% content growth for a game that's been in print for 30 years. In one year. And that doesn't even take into account card variants. So, like, Extended Art, Borderless, Showcase, Artist Series. Exactly. Like, in the latest set, Phyrexia All Will Be One, one card, Elish Norn, Mother of Machines, has 10 different printings. 10 different archive numbers like so in 2021 there were almost 50,000 card variations up until that point not released in 2021 but like overall uh and there were over 10,000 card variations added in 2022 so 20% growth like I I don't I don't see how that isn't overprinting yeah, how's that um, not and, notable yeah, well, and I don't, I don't know how consumers can keep up with that. Now, the answer from Hasbro has been they don't have to. No one's making them. Um, but that's a really bad response. Um, yeah, especially when like the history, you got to take into account the fact that uh, players have been playing the game and experiencing the game and collecting the game for so some of them, anyways, for so yeah. many decades. And mm -hmm. they've had this expectation of this sort of experience forever, basically, for the entire existence of this game. Oh, well, and it's also, very rapidly changing. Well, also, and like, that's also jarring, right? Like, that's part of the problem, yeah. is that it's not a slow rollout. This is, like, a very rapid change in terms of strategy and production. Well, and, like... I don't think it has to be yeah. a slow rollout either. But Hasbro has something that most creators would kill for, they have customers who want to consume everything that's produced. The average exactly. Magic player wants to keep up to date on everything, wants to try to collect everything. Finding that sweet spot where they can, like, tabletop gaming is a luxury market. It sounds absurd to say that, um, but it is. It's a luxury market where it's paid for with disposable income. And when you have a consumer base that's saying, we would like to spend all of our disposable income on this product, but you're making it so we can't, what Hasbro hears is, you're going to spend all your disposable income anyway, and maybe we can hook some larger people. But what they're not seeing is the number of customers who are now no longer on the hook because of it. And you can't, they can't track that. They don't have a method of data collection for that. Um, yeah. Again, it's it's almost impossible, or it's very difficult to measure lost opportunity. Yeah, like you can't see the things that are not happening because of what you're doing. Right? Yeah, the, what, the whether it's principle of like yeah, whether it's who you the, the opportunity are, cost. 
yeah, whether it's who you're turning away from your community in the game store, or it's who you're turning away as a customer with, you know, your card game. Yeah. But I mean, but Hasbro also like still product releases are exploding too. Like in 2020, there were 12 physical releases and 26 secret layers. 2021, 14 physical releases, 46 secret layers. 2022, 18 physical releases, 60 secret layers. There's over 80 secret layers planned for 2023. Like that doesn't even account for the variety of product types in most releases. So like some releases are just commander decks or solo products like Time Spiral Remastered. A great release, by the way. Um, but increasingly releases have draft boosters, set boosters, collector boosters. Whereas before, and when I say before, I mean like 2019. Um, yeah, a few years there ago. Were, there were just draft boxes. That's all there was. I, I personally love set boosters. Um, I would actually love to see Wizards uh, no longer providing draft boosters uh, to the community at large and letting them be a WPN-only product. But that's my retailer pipe dream and not something that's ever going to happen. Um but like I love set boosters, I believe in set boosters, but like when every single release has three to four product types, you know, customers can't keep track of it. Retailers can barely keep track of it. You know, yeah. the, the number I of retailers that... who play magic and can't even play the game anymore because they're spending all of their hobby time as work time keeping up with the product is <laughs> you know, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I think I see it kind of from between. I see it from the retailer side because I work with a lot of them, and I see how much like the skew count has has uh, exploded, yeah. and how much how just that adds a certain amount of burden to managing everything. Right? It's just the more skews you got, the more complicated things become. Mm -hmm. So there's already that that factored in. But also as a player, the idea, like you mentioned, that a lot of players came into this game with the idea of collecting. That was a big portion. You want to play, you want to enjoy the game. Collecting was also like a, a high, either the primary goal or the secondary goal. It's up there, right? But yeah. at this stage now, because there's so much proliferation of product and type and variation, the, I, the ability to collect and be the completionist is almost impossible. Yeah. Like I've, yeah, I've but... known so many people personally who were players who that, that was the thing. A new set would come out, mm -hmm. they'd get four of every card, they'd complete Absolutely. their binder, they'd put it on their shelf, and that was their thing. They wanted to do that. Can, but it's almost you, impossible for the average person to be able to do that without spending well, an exorbitant well, amount of money in, at this point. In 2022, that's over 40,000. If you want full play sets of every variant, that's over 40,000 cards. Which is crazy. That's, crazy. That's, that's I, I would hazard a guess, and I may be wrong on the specifics here, but I'd hazard a guess that that is last year was probably the equivalent of uh having a play set of every single card from 2000 and earlier in one year yeah like <laughs> something along those lines yeah which uh, is a big ask for somebody so like it basically yes. makes the idea of collecting the game unattainable mm -hmm. which i think is turning people off i think it's the idea like yeah. you can still play obviously you can still play the game and you know if you don't care about what the variants are you don't care about what the cards are or like which version of the card you, you have mm -hmm. and you don't care about collecting all, if that's your motivation to play the game, then it's not a big deal for you. But maybe the question is how many people are, you know, finding that distasteful, right? Like they, that's maybe like the source of their, 
their ire, right? Like they don't yeah. like the situation, but they don't really know exactly why. They're just angry because it just doesn't feel as good as it used to to continue playing the game. Yeah. It also doesn't feel good to know that the company's like, I just want your money. Like I really, what I want to do is I want you, as much right. of your money as possible. Well, and, and, you know, and whether or not you enjoy it during the process is, uh, is optional. Well, and, that, and that's the, the horrible, the horrible part about it too is like, 2021 and 2022 i think actually saw some of the best content that magic has ever had like these are they're good sets and really cool mechanics fantastic Mm -hmm. art um being produced in this crunched schedule uh and everyone's missing it because they can't keep up it yeah it's yeah. I, I've I've had customers uh, liken magic overprinting to sports card overprinting in the '90s, and I I think they missed the part where like those sports card companies are doing great now, and they did great then, and it was retailers and collectors who got crushed. Um, but I think there's a lot of similarities in things like non hobbyists entering the market to make a quick buck on investment uh, rather than players, as well as higher price offerings you know back to the 30th anniversary boosters pricing out these core collectors you know and when you price out your core collectors you see a drop in your sealed product sales you know it's i mean also like in the 90s the whole the whole crash was about like they didn't really know what was a limited printing and what was printed demand but we do know now you know when a magic release comes out like it's it can be a little hard to follow sometimes, but like retailers know how many printings that a set's going to get, like roughly when collector boosters are going to be available, when they aren't, things like that. Um, but even even printed demand products are in higher, printed in much higher volume than they used to be, and limited printings, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, it's. I think it's a, I think it's a bad situation, but it's, uh, I think it's one that they're intentionally creating. Um, oh yeah, that's what we haven't, I haven't rambled about, uh, the blueprint. So Hasbro's business strategy for the past few, past few years has been their brand blueprint or just the blueprint. And last year we got blueprint 2.0, probably thanks to AltaFox, the activist investor, um kind of putting pressure on them um but like a few years ago yeah that was interesting that was definitely interesting uh but like a few years ago uh chris cox outlined his vision in an investor presentation um i think it was um end of year 2019 actually um or beginning of year 2020 and uh he and now cynthia williams have kind of repeated and expanded on it every chance they can get for the past few years um, like there's a lot of weeds to get lost in the blueprint. So like, I just ignore anything that's not D and D or magic. Um, but like, there's three big points on this. Like one, they consider wizards play network, a captured market. So, and this is where the prediction kind of comes in. Cause like, instead of predicting what wizards is going to do, they literally are legally obligated to tell us what they're going to do. And you can just go look on their website and see. And so like, uh, <laughs> the hobby channel is going to continue as usual 
any planned growth is going to happen in direct and mass market sales channels in that order of investment priority. So, you know, big box stores, Walmart and Target, online sellers like Amazon, uh, direct to consumer sales like Secret Layers, and then digital releases like with Arena. Um, for Magic, at least. Um, so, like, we're going to see more Arena formats and promotions, more Secret Layer drops, more Amazon pre-sales. Uh, for D&D, that means more D&D Beyond releases, uh, that virtual tabletop they've been talking about, and more direct from Hasbro physical digital bundles and exclusives, like we saw with Dragonland Shadow of the Dragon Queen, the alt-cover book, and bundled with the Warriors of Kryn board game. We're going to see more of that. That's their plan. Um, whereas WPN stores are kind of, I don't want to say fending for themselves because we're not seeing a reduction in, um, in support, but it's not going to be growing, uh, by design and explicitly. So, uh, second point, uh, brands are more powerful than other marketing and at least according to wizards and, and honestly, American corporations at the moment. Um, but with Magic becoming a billion-dollar brand, they think they can take it even higher and turn other brands into the success story that Magic is. So that focus on brand, what it changes is crossover branding like Universes Beyond for Magic and setting crossover books for D&D are going to happen a lot more because it introduces that brand to new markets. Uh, same with growth media like the D&D feature film or the in-production animated Netflix series for Magic. Um, and like, so monetization can be as high as a brand is popular in theory. So we are going to see more higher price offerings, um, and potentially official versions of high quality third party products like, uh, the D and D books and packages from Beetle and Grimm, um, see more official versions of things like that. Uh, so we're going to see more things like $250 booster packs. We're kind of already seeing it with the Lord of the Rings uh, magic set. And I, I, I personally wonder how much of that is licensing passed on to uh, passed on down the chain and how much mm -hmm. is Wizards treating it like a it's a one time release. They're not going to do it again. It's a high priced offering. So they're just going to double the cost on what they usually charge. See how much you can make. That's a, yeah. You got to test oh, and, the ceiling, right? Yeah, well, and the third part of the blueprint is uh, the idea that a lean company is a profitable company. Um, that thousand employee layoff a couple months ago, uh, that was a planned and disclosed part of Hasbro reducing their run rate by cutting staff. And they're going to do it more every single year. Uh, they plan to grow their operating profit by 50% over the next three years. Their goal is a billion dollars operating cash flow annually. And to grow their operating profit margin from 16% to 20% in four years. That's very aggressive and also doesn't leave a lot of room for messing up. And they've shown that that kind of growth is possible. Uh, 2021, Wizards of the Coast net revenue increased 42%. Operating profit increased 30%. But where I'm worried for them is maintaining it. Because in 2022, their net revenue increased 3%. And their operating profit decreased 2%. That's not their business strategy working. You know, like if that was part of their blueprint planning for a lack of growth like that, uh, yeah, they'd all be out the door already. And they're not. Yes. So, which means that 
they've identified something's not working and hopefully are going to change it. But I think they're kind of stuck on Blueprint 2.0. That's interesting. That's, uh, again, enlightening as to why things are the way they are and the direction that they're going. Yeah. And, well, it's and actually it's, really interesting that, that the the numbers, like the idea of like, okay, here's yeah. the plan, here's the strategy, here's where we're going, it's going to work, and this is what our <laughs> predictions are going to be financially, projections, all that stuff. And then like, hey, reality is giving us a big hard slap right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and they blame Q3 and Q4. Like, you know, that, you know, the Q4 Hasbro sat on a lot of inventory. They didn't move as much magic, sealed magic product as they thought they were going to, um, which I think is the trickle down of consumers buying less as well as margin shrinking at retailers. So retailers order less, distributors order less because they're sick of sitting on product themselves. Because uh, that's another that's another uh, optics thing that consumers and retailers don't really see the same way that Hasbro does. Uh, we see products sitting at our local game stores or sitting at our distributors and are like, oh man, this is so bad. But Hasbro is like, we printed to capacity and sold most of it. It's already out the door. The money's already in their bank account when it's sitting at stores and distributors. They don't care. Yeah. Um, but because of that, people who got sick of holding the bag really ordered less and it tanked their Q4. So, you know, Chris Cox saying that customers are too price sensitive isn't necessarily the case. It's retailers are sick of being squeezed. Distributors are sick of being left holding the bag, especially on products where like there's no tail on magic product anymore, really not on most of it. Like it mm -hmm. used to be, you could order you, if you could afford to, you could order a year's supply of your magic set at pre-release and at release. And if you have the cash, just sit on it and let it sell throughout, sell throughout the year as you keep raising your box price the further away from release it gets. That's not really the case anymore. I mean, just look at sets that released a year ago, um, you know, uh, the Innistrad Crimson Vow and Midnight Hunt, like those box prices aren't climbing. Um, not really. N not like they would have in 2018, 2019. So like no one mm -hmm. wants to be holding this product. They want to, like most other non-magic TCGs, they want to get it in, sell it early and maybe hold on to some or be have a way to get some more when the price actually does go up but you're, you're not going to see a product wall of every set unless that's the store's uh value proposition which is can be a really good value proposition if you have market dominance in tcgs but if you're not if you're just like in my area you know a million residents with 19 game stores no store can hold on a product like that having a deflationary environment where the products are gradually losing value or projected to lose value even like the thought that they might lose value makes you want to like get them and get gone right you don't yeah. want to sit on these things whereas before for years it was always like you know uh with the reserve list or vintage cards or anything like that mm -hmm. or sealed product in general the expectation was that these are just going to continue to rise in value, maybe hopefully steadily, not crazy. Right. But like, they're going to go, right. They're going to be, they're going to stop being printed. 
and there's still going to be demand for them and people are still going to want boxes of Ravnica or whatever the case happens to be. They will want those in the future and the value is just going to keep rising. So if you hang on to them, it's not a loss necessarily for the store, but it puts you in a really weird spot if they're going down. Yeah. And then the other thing was that uh, the information gap, like this delay. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. this was, I talked about this a long time ago with uh, the supply chain because back during, you know, mid, was it mid 2020, like pandemic was kind of going, you know, it was throwing everything off the, that was a off wild the hook. Ride. Yeah. Yeah. And the supply chain was completely disrupted. And right, like it's just mm-hmm. across the world. Every industry was impacted by this, but we're still feeling the effects. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you don't feel it right away. Right. Right. There's like, oh, there's a slight delay down the chain. You know, the shipping containers slightly delayed. But you're not, as the store, you're not going to feel that for maybe six to 12 months later. Like, yeah. it's, the, the impacts have this timeline delay. And it's like a whip through the system that at the beginning, it like starts off small. And you're like, oh, the disruption gets bigger and bigger the farther away you are. Until, like, you know, you're you're sitting here trying to, like, figure something out to have product to sell. And it's just you can't yeah, get it anywhere because it's yeah, until the you, delay until is so, so problematic. Yeah. yeah, until you're standing in your store suddenly uh you know frantically reading freightwaves.com like you know when are they gonna get <laughs> yeah. the containers like yeah. yeah and you're thinking like okay well what can i sell like what can i shift into like i can't yeah, sell this product I, anymore because i just can't get it do i yeah, need to I like sell this product something else yeah like i'm never gonna get this release on time so i need to plan accordingly and not run pre-release events for it versus also you know, ah, when does this Kickstarter plan on fulfilling? I know it's a slam dunk Kickstarter, but like, if I'm not going to get it for another two years after they project that they're going to have it because they can't start manufacturing yet, like, yeah, yeah it, and then it, like, it's, it's a lot to have to it. worry about. Yeah, because you could invest potentially a lot of cash into something that you think will be great and it could be great but like what happens yeah. if the company folds or something and they just like well we we tried and we just burned or, out, burned all of our capital waiting for manufacturing to kick in like that's a possibility yeah and that's or terrifying run, right like or business runs uncertainty where they either ran out of product to shift ship or just forgot some game stores and like you know yeah. release comes and goes you know the hot period is uh is done with and folks are just now getting their you know literal ton of board game it's yeah. and that and that's a and that is also um you know a result of pandemic conditions uh still having an effect after the fact yeah, yeah it's yeah it's still happening like it's only been you know, maybe like you could say, maybe it's been 12 months since it's really yeah. kind of gone back to semi-normal, you know, situation. Yeah. But for like that, container prices. That impact, like, yeah. like we're still feeling it. We're going to feel it for at least another couple of years well, so in, in different we, ways and in different areas of the, uh, of the economy. Well, we saw it with the convention boom as well, as well as the number of products that ended up getting released. There was also a delay in that production where everyone wanted to play catch up with it. Where so like, you know, you have all these you have all these companies who haven't been able to produce. Their cash flow cycle has been disrupted, and they need to play catch up. Um, and so now there's also a rush to market for all of these products that is causing a whole new logjam. Yeah, good times, great times. Yeah, what? Yeah, it, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. Just bring it back to Hasbro. It's like I. It's just interesting to me to see what pressures seem to have worked, what didn't. Like, so for example, like, 
Hasbro didn't really seem to care about what Bank of America thought. Um, like the Bank of America basically uh, downgraded the their rating for Wizards of the Coast, and the reason why they care is they're a major lender for Hasbro to the tune of like a billion dollars in 2019 in an agreement for extended credit loans on an ongoing basis. Like they have a huge interest in the health of Hasbro. Um, and like Hasbro just brushed the, brushed it off versus then you have Altafox, uh, who owned at the time, like, uh, two and a half percent of Hasbro, which is like a lot for a company Hasbro size. It's actually kind of absurd. Um, where they, the board of directors seemed to kind of brush off their demands and, and their demands were in my opinion pretty pretty absurd like pretty brazen yeah. like disregard the blueprint business strategy replace the chairman of the board add two outsiders to the board spin off wizards of the coast into a whole separate company none of these are things that like a board of directors with stock in the company is going to have an interest in um and it didn't go well for yeah, them they're all but, very drastic positions and recommendations but i think it shook up the investor situation because what really came to light is that for a lot of people who like retailers have known for a while that wizards is kind of hasbro's cash cow um but even a lot of customers don't know investors didn't really know especially hasbro investors in particular um but like Hasbro's over 1,500 brands. Two brands, Magic and D&D, were over 60% of their profit in 2022. That That's huge, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I liken it to the Eye of Sauron, you know, turning to look at the ring bearer. You know, investors have seen that Wizards of the Coast is the single largest profit center for Hasbro. And now that it's known, there's going to be unbearable pressure on these brands until either the brand, brand breaks or someone finds a way to get in between the brand and investors, you know, and I think that's a lot of the pressure that we're seeing on monetization. You know, the whole D and D is an under monetized brand. Um, Is this investor pressure because of the revelations that Alta Fox made? Yeah. It's an interesting take (laughs) that they're, they're leaning on those two to, make up for any shortcomings in other areas of the business, which yeah. is an unfortunate reality that plays itself out in all sorts of situations. You're like, Oh, you're the workhorse. So therefore you are going to have to carry so much more of this burden just so we can keep going. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot. But, well, uh, and that's the thing. Like, I don't think Alta Fox's uh, claims were unreasonable, just their demands, you know? Uh, yeah. Again, disclosure, like, you can go and look and see how other parts of the business are doing. You know, there's, there's currently three sectors of Hasbro and one is wizards of the coast and it outperforms the other two easily. So like all of their consumer products are, are about half of wizards revenue. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny too, because that reflects a lot of game stores in a, in a sense that like wizards products, represent the vast majority of their revenue over the course of a year. Yep. Like how many stores are built off the back of magic, the gathering, right? Like, yeah. In looking at the blueprint, uh, you know, the 
mostly unsolicited advice that I'd give to retailers is make sure you're not the ones left holding the bag. And I don't mean if something goes wrong with Wizards. I mean if something goes right with Wizards. If Hasbro's blueprint continues as planned, they don't plan on investing in you more. Their products, their goal is to improve their run rate. That means lowering their own costs and raising their own revenue to increase their profit. Um, we've already seen measures like uh, measures prior to the blueprint going into place, like the removal of MSRP for magic products, which seemed like it was a great thing because then we could rely on market price, but that's not the case. What it really does is it, it makes that margin hidden from the general public as well as from retailers. So like, you know, we're seeing um, market price dictating that local game stores don't have a margin unless they make one for themselves. And you can have, yep. you can easily have the majority of your revenue as a game store coming from those two massive brands, D and D and, um, you know, and uh, magic but how much of that is actually your profit? Uh, I think stores that rely on sealed product in particular, sealed product sales, um, in most cases are in a lot of trouble if they keep doing that, unless they have some part of that tied to their UVP. You know, unless they can dominate Absolutely. their market um, by offering those things, unless they have top of mind of all of their TCG customers in the area and everyone is going to them and they're selling by volume and by margin. Um, you know, I just, I don't think that's going to be sustainable going forward with what Hasbro has said they plan to do. You know, a, a game store can't get a cut yeah. of a virtual tabletop, and nor should they, but just practically, they really, they really can't. So that's a customer base that wi Wizards and Hasbro are growing that local game stores. The average right. local game store. Exactly. Yeah. I you remember know, this was a, there was a similar discussion back when Arena became more common and became yep. a thing. Was that like, well, you, you've got this, like in, to an extent, I guess, Magic, Magic Online way back in the day when they first <laughs> launched that. That was probably the same sort of thing. I was like, well, you're just going to cannibalize my business by having like my customers move their purchase, so, yeah. purchases Speaking online, of luxury right? goods. Buying direct. Yeah. 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 But that's a thing that's still, it's still, you know, something that they're pushing. Mm -hmm. And Arena has, like, I've, I've talked to retailers that have seen the effect of that arenas had on like standard, for example, like just, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, sorry. I've never heard, I've, I've never, I've never heard of that format. I've never seen it in a store. What's standard. Exactly. It's gone. <laughs> it doesn't really exist anymore yeah. because it's easier and cheaper for people to play, play that version of the game online from the comfort of their own home and to get games whenever they want and get it like immediately. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, it's so I mean, like, there's so many players now that uh, you can just queue up and get started and, you can do yeah, it. You I mean, I mean Hasbro did a great thing with Spell Table too, to be like to give them some credit. Um, releasing Spell Table during the pandemic was fantastic, and in my experience, it actually it pulled a lot of players out of Arena and back to Paper Magic. Um, again, not a lot of ways that a store can capitalize on that, 
uh during the pandemic it was easier because yeah. you could just be like you know hey we're gonna we're gonna plug it into event link uh you know let me give you a companion code and you can run this on spell table um but not, not so much anymore and and behaviors are changing right people are not mm-hmm. isolating and they're not stuck in their house so they don't have to right. figure out a technological solution to be able to go play they can just go to the store if they want to do that or play with their friends at their house now it's not uh not quite the lockdown anymore yeah at, at the moment but uh yeah, it's an interesting, it puts stores at an interesting and potentially unfortunate place where they're kind of caught in the middle and they're sort of seen by by Wizards and Hasbro as maybe like a, I don't know. I feel like they're getting a lot of lip service in the sense that, yeah, you know, hey, we really like, you know, we want you to succeed. We want you to like to make sure that your business thrives while we're thriving and everything's great and we're all going to be partners in this whole explosion of the hobby renaissance and all this, but I, I don't know if that's actually the reality. I feel like they're kind of being left yeah. behind or being squeezed between like, you know, economic conditions being crap for, for a lot of people, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the people who are providing their product are also competing against them. Which Yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> that's another thing. Like it's, <laughs> I, I really hate the fact that, you know, retailers are having to compete against their manu- the manufacturer of the product um in the same market you know that's yeah, it's not just it's, Hasbro, not, it's like everyone. no no it's not uncommon anymore we see it all the time i mean uh, people complain about hasbro but have you heard of asthma day um you know it's it's tough out there with that with that sort of direct competition um but it's i still I still hate to see it, especially when the business plan of the company is to move more in that direction. And also, Hasbro's motivations aren't, like, they don't think this is hurting local game stores. So, like, that's that's the problem in my eyes, is that they don't see how expanding those areas instead of trying to expand local game stores is hurt is actually hurting local game stores um you know wizards doesn't really i don't think wizards looks as closely at amazon sales as even retailers do you know amazon prices however they want like everyone thinks that like wizards is setting the price and all that but they're just providing the assets to amazon to use on the website you know and and amazon is setting those prices also amazon gets way less boxes than local game stores do you know, it's the WPN network uh, blows Amazon out of the water. Amazon just looks like it has a lot because we're looking at a single source rather than the aggregate of game stores. Um, but sure. like, I don't think Wizards is even looking at that, those prices as something that's hurting their sealed product sales through WPN. But it definitely has an impact because it changes how retailers order, you know? Yeah, they it could, changes uh, how consumers behave as well, right? It's, yep. I think I've probably seen somebody post in the the Facebook groups for the retailers that there's always a complaint or somebody saying, Hey, I'm so sick and tired of people being like, can you price match Amazon? You know, the boxes are for, are for this price and you're selling them for like 20% or 10% more. And like, this is like a constant experience for retailers to the point where like, I'm so done with this. I'm so tired of like, 
Well, Amazon doesn't have my rent, doesn't have to, you know, they're not providing mm-hmm. a play space for you. And like having that conversation of explaining what kind of value you are providing as the retailer, as the game store yeah. to your community and every single the, day, or at least it feels like every single day is uh, exhausting. <laughs> well, and, and, and the hard, the hard answer for retailers is to either move away from those products like you would any other product. It doesn't matter that magic and D&D are massive. If you aren't making it work, if you're basically paying to carry that brand and you can move away from it to another brand, do it. Like uh, one of the things with with the resolu- the current resolution of the whole OGL situation is we're about to see D&D with, with a Creative Commons SRD for D&D. We're about to see... Wizards being the, you know, Dungeons and Dragons being the official brand, but they're just a brand on equal level as any other content creator. Kobold Press and Magehand Press books have just as much validity as Wizards of the Coast books in a post-creative commons environment. They're having, mm-hmm. they're going to have to compete with those now, and with D and D. As unfortunate as to say, because the I, the developers are largely fantastic folks and they work really hard at their product. Um, the strategy seems for the past few years seems to have been leaning on that brand identity rather than creating products that are actually competitive in the market. You know, I mean, look at old school essentials and the adventures that they release, um, which are not for fifth edition D and D. But look at the quality of those versus anything that's been released in the past couple of years, you know, for for D&D. And it's no contest. And if you're a game store and your D&D community is looking for more and you can start bringing in products from other creators that have a better margin, do it. Drop official D&D. People can and will get their books on Amazon and uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other sellers like that target um, carry the core books as a loss leader and bring in third party stuff that gives you a better margin. You can supply better um, and you're not stuck constantly discounting. You know, unfortunately we can't really do that with magic. Like there's, there's other, there's other yeah. TCGs, of course, that are fantastic. I mean, Pokemon is still doing great, although prices are kind of kind of tanking compared to where they were during the collectibles boom recently. But, like, no one is going to eat Magic's lunch at the moment. Flesh and Blood's really cool, and I think it's a fantastic game. But we're not going to be seeing uh, conventions every three weeks of the year for flesh and blood anytime soon you know um definitely not and so like lore might give it a run stuff. for its money but we'll see i mean i think people underestimate how much money disney is about to throw at Lorcana. like the advertising budget for this game is probably going to be larger than hasbro <laughs> like uh yeah i, I think it's going to give it a run for its money i think i mean there's there, there's a lot of hesitancy on my part in terms of like the staying power of the product, but 
I even dipping your toes in, I think would be a great move for retailers. Just Disney is a huge market on its own. And you're going to pull in a lot of folks who are not traditional or existing gamers. Yeah. Yep. But if you're, if you're able to Disney stuff, Disney merch, (laughs) Disney things (laughs) is tremendous. And it's, you know, just by having the product on your shelves, you will naturally be able to pull in and, and sell to those, those people, people who would not normally necessarily step in front into a traditional game store. Yeah, absolutely. I think a big part of it will be spreading the word. Like, I don't know how this is going to play out. This is completely speculation because we have very little information on the game at this point. Like, we know little bits about it, but we don't really know about the core gameplay elements or anything mm-hmm. like that just yet. Yeah, we, we don't know we what don't it's going to look like, release schedule, all that Yeah, stuff we don't know how they're going to be doing chase cards, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, so who knows? <laughs> so there could be a lot of things to you know that'll change between here and or now and when the, the game actually does get released. But like it feels like the potential is so gigantic. The uh, <laughs> hello again. The uh, <laughs> the difference will be the stores that spread the word and really do market the fact that they have this and they're supporting it and they're they're making this thing part of what they're doing versus the stores that just sort of like well we got it in right and then like it, it depends. A lot of it will depend on the marketing because Disney's going to put their effort into it. But if oh, people yeah. don't know that you have it. Right, they'll go to Target. Right. Like they'll go to Walmart, Walmart, because I'm guaranteed yeah. they'll be in those stores, right? Like they'll oh, go to I, those I, big box stores first, or they'll go to Amazon or wherever. I think we're going to see. They will go to you box. if they know you have it. Yeah, I think we're going to see a big box, big box push for it more than other similar products. But I actually don't think that's going to hurt local game stores in this case. It, to me, it matters a lot more that it is going from what is largely a mass market offering to a hobby channel marketing um, versus a hobby channel marketing moving into mass market. You know, you're not losing game stores aren't losing market share. They already have, you know, they're gaining mm-hmm. market share from a larger community. Um, but yeah, I just wizards of the coast and Hasbro um, have been a staple for game stores for 30 years. You know, I mean, Wizards has been with, you know, has been owned by Hasbro for 20 plus years at this point. But like, um, you know, it's it's been a core to the local game store experience. And I I just don't think retailers should feel beholden to that. And I think focusing on those is dangerous for stability. I mean, even just the the cash flow difficulties of uh, being in a post-pandemic world with TCGs where no company seems to care at all about the other's release schedule. You just have releases on top of releases on top of releases, you know? So, like, you're going from ordering, you know, ordering for one company that you, you know, that you're going to be stocking for three months to ordering, you know, to four companies just yeah <laughs> it's it's a lot yeah. to manage let's hope you have Not to mention lines. allocation and having to manage oh, yeah. multiple distributors and all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. to try and just get the amount yeah. of product that you need to sell yes it's very complicated yeah. but i think that's a that's a really interesting point i the idea that i don't know if game stores as we imagine them as we think of them <laughs> the idea 
of what they are would exist without wizards and magic mm-hmm. and D&D. Like if those just didn't exist, I don't think there would be any sort of, there wouldn't be the concept of a local game store. Cause I don't think there'd be anything to tie it in. Like I, they are almost foundational to the idea. Right. But at the same time, yeah. you have to be willing to, to be flexible and pivot. And like, if it's no longer fitting your business model, if it no longer serves you, you have to be willing to, uh, to cut it in the same way that you would any other, you know, product or product line yeah. that's not really moving for your store, right? If it's just, it's not working for you and it's not working for your community, it's not working for your business. Maybe, you know, you need reevaluate it, right? <laughs> I don't think it would, I don't think it makes sense to eliminate it entirely. Like you said, like right. you know, carry D&D products as a loss leader, don't necessarily go super deep on it, but mm-hmm. support the rest of, of the ecosystem that does support your business. But I mean, use it's also... that as the basis, maybe. Also, there's there's a certain freedom in saying, hey, uh, yes, I'm going to carry Magic the Gathering, um, but I'm not going to do singles. Or I'm going to carry Magic the Gathering, but I'm going to carry whatever amount will sell at the mar at the minimum margin I can accept for my store. You know, yeah. Um, it, profitability is margin and velocity combined. You know, so like if you're selling things super fast and high volume you know, then it does then your margin can be a lot lower, but like we're not really seeing that long term with magic, you know. I mean all will be one kinda was a nice shot in the arm. You know, no one can get their hands on draft boxes at the moment, for example. Like, you know, so that may maybe maybe I'm a little premature on that, but um Yeah. The quality of the sets still really matters. That's yeah. a, a thing that, you know, every retailer has experienced at some point in the past. Oh yeah. Or like sometimes you get a, you know, sometimes you get a, uh, let's take back Kamigawa, right? Sometimes you get a Kamigawa yeah. block original and you're like, oh, well, <laughs> blah, blah. And then sometimes yeah, you well, get well. a Mirrodin block and sometimes you get a Ravnica, right? Like, yeah. Very or, different experiences in terms of business. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but I mean, and that, that kind of leans in on the secondary mark, secondary value of the cards with which wizards, I don't think looks at, as definitely actually not even think just wizards does not look at as heavily in their design process as retailers do and hasbro i don't think looks at it all um except for their direct-to-consumer sales but like the value of singles in boxes and reprints determines their long-term value like look at crimson vow versus midnight hunt two back-to-back products midnight hunt people still have some interest in because there is a single chase card in their meat hug massacre that they want. There's nothing like that in Crimson Vow. So no one cares versus an extremely high price set like double masters, which is still in demand. Set quality matters. I think that's yeah, absolutely. The, the unfortunate part is that you, it's very hard to evaluate that ahead of time. You kind of get is. a feel for it, right? Like how many sets are like, yeah. this looks great. The art looks great. The cards look good. But yeah. at the same time, you're like, maybe it just doesn't quite take off or it just, well, you, you know, if you could predict what the metagame was going to be like, you know, ahead of time, everybody would be winning well, tournaments can, all the time, right? Well, like, also, also changing, uh, changing uh, conditions as well. So it used to be that spoiler season, you know, where they show us all the neat stuff um, that's going to be coming in the next set. Spoiler season would happen and we'd have lead time for the set the the purpose of spoiler season according to wizards representatives uh the purpose of spoiler season is so retailers 
can be informed about the product before, at least this is what, what how they time it. The goal is for retailers to be informed about the product before distributor order cutoff happens. Now, that's not the purpose of spoiler season, but that's the purpose of the timing of it. But now releases are so close together, even, even in the slightly loosened schedule for 2023, um, releases are still so close together that, you know, we're having situations where the spoiler season for the upcoming product, for the next product, is happening the week of the release of the current product. And so you have hype generation for the next thing before the current thing is even out in like how that's not a huge red flag. I don't understand. Um, but retailers yeah. now, and I think that's like, where the consumers are getting that feeling of like, I'm not being considered here. Like you're yeah. not even giving me a chance to care about the thing that you've just put so much time into and effort. Like you're, you're just shooting them out, hoping that I pick them up. And it feels like it's just an afterthought, right? Like right. people buy but, it. I don't even care. But having you know, only a couple of days, anymore. having only a couple of days to lock in your product order with only a little bit of information on what reprints there's going to, they're going to be, what new mechanics are going to be in there and making that, you know, um, subject matter expert decision of this is going to be a high value card so this is a product that we should really look at and try to focus on and, and purchase can't do that as much now because we just don't have as long of a lead time for that spoiler season those spoilers um just again the conditions are changing so it's making being able to make informed decisions more guesswork less legwork where does this leave game stores <laughs> where are so, we what is this what is their situation so it leaves game stores in a position where it's basically ride the wave or get off the surfboard um if you can find a way to position yourself to carry these releases profitably you're gonna see a windfall just like hasbro frankly has seen up until the end of 2022 and if hasbro is able to make some changes we're going to see that again in 2023 and and on um i don't think hasbro's in as bad a position as people think they are but i think they're in a differently bad position um and for like the whole getting off the surfboard element to it um if you can make your store less reliant on brands that are not going to invest in you further. That's just mm -hmm. going to make you stronger. It's going to make you more resilient to change. Um, it, you're not tied to someone else as strongly if they start to sink. And that's a benefit to everyone. Any parting words of advice i think this is a pretty good we've gotten for 90 minutes this is a pretty good length of time <laughs> yeah, this is, for this conversation I, I warned you i'll talk as long as you let me uh <laughs> i'm happy to have a long conversation but, and this is a fun fun chat but uh I do yeah wanna, yeah we want to respect yeah. people's time and be like okay let's, we can do this again later we're gonna have another one we just keep going right yeah we always tie um, this into another episode but uh yeah do you have any party words of advice for for store owners who are thinking like oh man the sky is falling what do i do <laughs> or, um in the like 
five minutes a month you have for your personal time, uh, maybe give up that too and uh, take a look at what Hasbro's actual plan is and make your business decisions based on it. Most companies in the game industry are not publicly traded. We don't have that look into their business. We do for Hasbro, which is a huge chunk of the industry, um, and being informed about what that is, what they're doing, what they plan to do, um, can really help you make better decisions and not be caught by surprise when they do things like suddenly raise prices on products for no reason that we can tell. Because somewhere in their disclosures, they probably have that information that they're going to do it by X date. And if you have that information ahead of time, you're going to be better off. Yeah, not being surprised is probably a good way to operate if you can. And at least with Hasbro, that information is out there. You just got to go find it. Yeah. And a lot of people again, in the industry keep things close these, to the uh, chest. Some of these resources right. in the show notes so that people can find that a little bit easier. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, where can people come and connect with you? If you want to, if someone's <laughs> like, oh, who's this guy? I want to talk to Dan. Where, where do they go? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll include a link to it. Uh, honestly, um, there is a uh, Discord community for the Greater Buffalo Area uh, gaming community uh, that I moderate. That is the easiest way to get a hold of me or emailing me. Um, currently, best way to get a hold of me is uh, dan at brokencrown.games. Um, and yeah, that's really it. Uh, I have social media presence all over and things like that, but uh, mostly my business dealings at this point have gone back to what they were prior to uh, getting involved with the, games, with the local game store, which is a lot of what I do is intentionally uh, private because the clients want it to be and things like that. So I don't really have a online presence otherwise for that, but... Gotcha. Yeah. If, if you want to include a link to the Discord, that'd be great. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, if people want to talk to me, just email me. I'm always available. All right. Sounds good. Well, I will try and send people your way. Hopefully we, some uh, some folks reach out to you and get connected because uh, <laughs> you're a smart guy. You're, you're well connected. You know what you're talking about when it comes to the I business. Appreciate and that. I appreciate I do recommend people, you know, if you got some questions, feel free to ask. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was a lot yeah. of fun. I, yeah, thanks for having great me. conversation. Uh, <laughs> this wasn't the most like upbeat and positive aspects no. of things, but I, again, sometimes pro- you got to talk about. I'm a professional web blanket. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, hopefully, people got some great information out of this this particular chat that we just had, and uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back in on again and talk about you know other stuff. I'm sure there's a whole world of things that we could discuss. Uh, yeah, but yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, indie RPGs—that will be much more upbeat. Well, maybe that will be a uh, an upcoming episode. Feel free to let us know uh, your thoughts on the podcast as well. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to everybody again in the next episode of the Manverse Podcast. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Manverse Podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you stay up to date whenever we upload. And if you like what you hear, we'd also appreciate a quick five-star review on iTunes. Thanks again for your listening of today's show. I'm Tom Traplin. I've been your host. 
And I will talk to you again in the next episode of the Maniverse Podcast.